0: And welcome to Diddy and Hawthorne and the In Between, your place for everything reading and language related. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gents. Now bookmark that book and let's begin. Hello, hello, and welcome to the show. Hallo und Herzlich Willkommen zu unserem Podcast. Today's episode marks the first book in our summer YA series, in which I go through and read the young adult books that proved formative to my development as a young reader. I've mentioned on the show before that I was a voracious reader throughout my childhood until about the seventh grade, and then I stopped reading altogether. Even, I'm sorry to say, some books for English class, All Quiet on the Western Front comes to mind, until the second half of my junior year of high school when I started the book-a-week reading challenge because I was tired of considering myself well-read when I was not, in fact, well-read at that time. Fast forward five years and approximately 300 books later, and we land here some 180-odd episodes into podcasting about this very topic, literature. At the risk of sounding like a broken record, I will champion anything, unless it's harmful or destructive of course, that gets young readers reading as these books got me reading. Thus, Welcome to our summer young adult series. Introduction: Why this book means what it does to me. We're starting with a young adult fantasy book, Graceling by Kristin Cashore, which is a book that I first read in early middle school and promptly did not read again until recently when I was preparing for this series. When I was younger, I wasn't a rereader. That habit explains my early love of serial works like all of the Goosebumps books, Horrorland, all of those, and also books in series, especially long series like the Septimus Heap series that we will read later on this summer. It took me almost 10 years to reread Twilight, which is a series that I've come back to so regularly throughout my adulthood. Twilight I admit that I forgot about this book and its significance to me until I made a list of books to review for this series. However, when I did start making that list, this book came up right away. In retrospect, I got messages from this book that contributed to my development as a reader and as a person, and they are 1. Strong female character for the win. Katza, the main female character of the book, is graced. We'll talk about what that means in a second. It's sort of like an amplification of a key skill. And she's graced with survival. Katza doesn't need saving. She does the saving. And she falls in love with someone who is her equal. There's no power imbalance in the relationship. Her strength is not the main point of her character or her role in the novel, however, which I love because it provides dimensionality to her status as a woman and as a deadly survivalist without putting those features necessarily at the forefront of her character. It's not the first thing you think of when you think of Katza. Second, this book taught me to always keep looking at problems from different angles. Katza grows up being equally feared and revered for her grace, which she is taught is killing, not survival. Yes, she's great at combat of all forms, archery, hand-to-hand, all these things. However, she realizes that her true grace is survival when she starts to add together the talents that she has aside from killing. She questions her long-held feelings, assumptions, and truths, all the while being flexible to how they change over time. Summary of the plot I'm going to do a quick plot summary here so that my rambling about the book and what I remember and what the experience of reading it was like makes a little more sense than it did the first time I edited this episode. So, the plot summary is as follows. There are 7 kingdoms in this fantasy world that Kashor creates and The main kingdoms that you need to know about are the Midlands, which is literally this kingdom in the middle. It's bordered by a couple different kingdoms, uh, and it's sort of a trade kind of kingdom. That's where Katza is from. That's where Katza's uncle, the king, rules, and her cousin... Raffin is her best friend. He's sort of a medicine man kind of person. He's not graced and neither is the king, but she is graced, which means that she has this heightened skill and the way you can tell if someone is graced is they have two different colored eyes and oftentimes the eyes are very brightly colored, so really it's a dead giveaway. Different kingdoms treat graced individuals differently. So, in the Midlands, the king uses the graced as sort of a tool to gain power. And in Leonid, which is where one of the other main characters is from, the graced are free. They're treated with reverence and with this kind of sacred air, and they have this complete. Authority and freedom within that kingdom so very different treatments throughout the different kingdoms of these graced individuals We can draw parallels in real life of course to different minority groups throughout history how they've been treated as revered on one hand and scorned on the other Used as tools on one hand and used to their own volition on the other. So it's a very thoughtful construction of this world in that regard, that there are lots of real-world ties. It's very, it's a very meta book in that sense. Our main character, Katsa, is supposedly graced with killing, but as I just explained, she realizes that she's actually graced with survival. So she's brought up as this extremely deadly killer, like all she does is practice different killings on 20 soldiers at a time. And she becomes very good as a survivalist in the sense that she's able to spend her time honing these different skills of survival. And it's early on in the book when she meets Poe, who I believe his name is Prince Greening, and he's also graced. He has these gold and silver eyes, which I'll explain where that comes from in a minute. And he is supposedly graced with hand-to-hand combat. He's very good. He's the only person that has ever encountered who can hold his own in a fight. And at that, just barely. Uh, in Lenid, which is the kingdom that he comes from, the kingdom by the sea, he is able to practice hand-to-hand combat a lot because that is one of their strengths as a people. They are a peaceable people, but yet they have hand-to-hand combat. Kind of ironic. As one of their main uh, features, I should say. Uh, Facts about Leonids. They wear gold hoop earrings, and they wear lots of rings. I know Poe's mother, the queen of Leonid, wears 19 gold rings because they wear one for each of their parents, I believe, one for the king one for each sibling of which Poe has six siblings. He's the seventh son of the seventh kingdom. And they, yeah, they. so they wear a lot of rings and they're a very distinctive kind of look. They have this kind of dark complexion with the gold rings and the gold hoops. Poe is after his missing grandfather. Grandfather Tea Leaf has been abducted and no one knows where this grandfather is except When Katza, who does work tormenting people on behalf of her king at the beginning of the book, not throughout it, decides to come rescue Grandfather Tea Leaf, and she has this secret council that she created, and they go throughout Seven Kingdoms doing work that's just good and just, and work that she feels is morally right and kind of in contrast really to the work that she does for the king so as you can imagine quickly she stops doing work for the king and leaves in exile from the kingdom before that though she meets poe who is also looking for his grandfather we've come back full circle so after Poe and Katza spend a season, I believe it's the summer season, training together and getting to know each other. He's really Katza's first outside friend, which is really nice. She has a handmaiden named Helda, who is her friend, and then Raffin, of course, is her friend. Ban, who's Raffin's assistant, is her friend, and then she has a couple of advisors like Ol and Gideon is sort of a friend. He proposes to her, which is awkward, and she does not want to get married. That's one of the big things of this book. She doesn't want to get married. So Poe is really one of her only, if not her only, outside friend at the beginning of the book, and they decide after this season, after she leaves the king uh, in disgrace, to go search out for why the grandfather was kidnapped, and they end up rather quickly, I should say, on the news that there's this king of Monsi, King Lech, and he has a grace of persuasion, and he has been able to persuade a whole kingdom of people that he is the bee's knees, essentially, and he has these horrible habits that I'm not going to go into to keep this PG, but it involves cutting and animals, and he has reframed this to where he is the kindest caretaker of animals in all the land, but in fact, he's been torturing animals and people, including maidservants, this whole time, and he's awful so he has a wife which is poe's aunt and poe's aunt has a daughter with king leck whose name is Bitterblue. poe and katza journey to Monsi, which is the farthest cats has been from home i think and they find the aunt in the process of being killed in the forests so they stumble upon this horrible scene of king leck killing the aunt and realized that Kat- Katza is not protected from King Lex's power. In other words, she had a brilliantly clear shot at King Lex, and Poe kept saying, kill him, kill him, what are you doing? And she just was completely caught up by King Lex's grace, meaning that the most deadly and dangerous member of their party between Poe and Katza can't do the killing of King Leck which turns out to be kind of an important plot point because she has to trust Poe in a way that she's never trusted anyone before and she's had this new vulnerability that has never been apparent in her life before So, The ant gets killed. They find Bitterblue, the daughter, in the forest. Bitterblue, I think, is 10 years old or something. She's so small, and she's just so... She's a child, right? She's helpless. She has no hand-to-hand combat skills, anything like that. She's a princess. Katza and Poe take Bitterblue, and they go and they feed her and they start clothing her better and they are surviving essentially in the forest on the run from this massive guard and King Lek, who is even more dangerous because he has an inner circle of graced individuals including like an archer and all these things and then an outer circle of regular guardsmen so it's very hard to get at him. Katza and Poe quickly devise a plan to can't kill king Leck, meaning that poe has to go out on his own and katsa and bitterblue are instructed to leave if poe is not back by the end of the day so poe comes back at the very end of the day literally as katsa is packing the bags to leave and he's been shot by arrows the horse has been shot by arrows and he is slumped over on the top of the horse and the horse on these steep mountain paths that they are camping out on slips, and Poe and the horse both fall face first into a ravine. Poe is obviously not in a state to do the runaway chase anymore because he has been knocked unconscious and he has head injuries, and there's been lots of wounding because of the arrows that have been shot at him, and so. They make the hard decision after a couple days' time to leave Poe at sort of an outpost where Katsa spends a day furnishing bow and arrow, a fish trap, all these things for Poe. They find a hiding place for him while he can recover. and the plan is after Bitter Blue has been taken to safety and after King Luck is dead, then they will come back for him there. They leave. Bitter Blue and Katze. They go through a long, arduous journey that I'm not going to get into. It really tests Katza's survivalist race for a long time, Uh, and maybe for the first like real time this whole book, because she has had to do things like fight a mountain lion and all these things that she had never encountered before in her life in the palace, So, and also protecting Bitterblue, this vulnerable ten-year-old child who is more prone and susceptible to the elements and to hunger and all these things than Poe was when they were traveling together. So this really tests her ability and she goes through for weeks through these mountain passes and it's the dead of winter as well. So it's quite cold and it's literally a race against heat versus cold fire you know is it safe to build a fire all these things so it's a particularly arduous journey because of the season that they're in as well because food is scarce etc etc they end up going through a pass that no human really goes through it's called grella's pass i believe and they, that's the only way out of the kingdom of Monsi to a different kingdom in order to be safe. So they pass through this thing in like a day and a half, which is insane. She, Katsa literally straps Bitter Blue onto her and just runs through the whole thing the whole day. It's insane. And in, in the dead of winter, right? They get through, they get past this kingdom of Monsi. And they find council sympathizers who take them in for the night, bathe them and clothe them and all these things, which is excellent. They get on a ship to Leenid. We find out while they're going on this ship that Poe gave Katza his ring of uh, his princehood. So he wears a ring for himself as well in Leenid. And the ring means that whoever has the ring, whoever Poe gives the ring to, has his whole castle, his whole princehood, meaning that Katza is now a princess as well. So Katza, the princess of Lenid, all of a sudden says, I need you to take me to Poe's castle. That's where we're gonna find safety and respite for a bit while we plan on a way to kill King Lech. So they do just that. They go on the sea. Everything's exciting. They teach bitter blue sword fighting. It's a really fun, uh, very fantastical as well adventure kind of part of the book where there isn't really a worry about survival or anything like that. They're just on the sea and having a great time going to Leonid. This is Katza's first time on the sea, so there's lots of beautiful imagery that Katza notices through this. And The book is not first-person narration, but it's a third-person omniscient narration focusing on Katza. So a lot of Katza's feelings and things are made apparent because the narrator, the omniscient narrator, is focused so much on Katza. So we get to the castle, Poe's castle, in Lenin and they go in, they are being expected for some reason, and there's a, like, whoa, what is going on? They come into this dining room of the castle and King Luck is there. And he basically has Poe's whole family, his six brothers and their wives, and the king and queen held captive there by his manipulative grace and his voice. And he's saying all these blasphemous things. This is my castle. This is uh, just a traitor that's walked in here. All these things. And Katza is, again, she's not mentally prepared. She's not mentally fortified so that she also gets slipped in to King Lex Grace. And she's being confused and manipulated. And she's just in this wash of confusion. When he says, Oh, bring me my daughter, Bitter Blue, and Bitter Blue is freaking out. She has had enough. She is not really I- under any sort of spell by King Leck. She is throwing a fit and she is, you know, getting up in Katza's arms and holding onto her legs, like, Don't leave me. And is like, Well, okay. And so she doesn't know why, but she follows Bitter Blue's instinct here and King Lech starts to reveal Poe's true grace, which, I'm sorry, I should have said this earlier, is this, perse- this perception. I, I don't know how to say it other than that. It's, it's not hand-to-hand combat, it's actually he can read the thoughts and feelings of people near him at first, and then his grace starts to expand to where he can kind of see this mental topography of the entire land. So if there's a bird like 200 feet away, he knows the exact shape and size of that bird and sort of how it looks like and stuff and what noises it's making, all these things. So he has this grace that allows him to have like this sixth sense kind of thing where if there are people coming, like he can count the number of people without seeing them. This becomes important for later. So King Leck has kind of figured out Poe's grace, which is a secret, and it's a secret because it's a very dangerous grace in the sense that if anyone found out about it, then they would probably want to manipulate Poe and use him for their kingdom, because it's a very powerful one. So King Leck starts to blab about Poe's grace or what he suspects Poe's grace to be and Katza shoots him in the mouth with an arrow (laughs) and he does and it's sort of a reflex that Katza's horrified at because she's been trained to kill right so she is particularly saddened by the fact that she had reflexes just to kill someone but at the same time this literally is the best thing that happens in terms of this plot line <laughs> in the whole book. So she really is the savior of the whole seven kingdoms, in a sense, from this really dangerous man. So King Lech is dead. They take a while for everyone to get out of their stupor and piece together what happened because King Lech, his highest power is really powerful. So it takes a while for the magic to wear off there. They eventually decide, so Bitterblue becomes queen because both of her parents are dead, so she's queen of Monsi now at 10 years old. And they go back to Monsi They start preparing for her coronation, Bitterblue's coronation, and the king of Leonid helps out. Then they find Poe at this place, and quickly, Poe is very moody, he's not acting himself all the time, and he's happy to see them of course, but he's just not acting himself. Katza realizes very quickly that he's blind, that he's gone blind from his injuries, and it's a heavy loss that they grieve together throughout the several months that they spend at the cabin that Poe was camped out at this whole time. Eventually though, all is well, Poe accepts back his princehood, which is a good thing, and it's sort of a happy ever after in the sense that All of Katza's friends from Midland, like Ol, her advisor, Gidin, and Rathan, and Ban, they all come back for the coronation ceremony to Monsi, so there's a reunion there. Poe and Katza have been lovers for some time, and it's this reluctance for Katza not to get married, and she and Poe just decide to have a relationship anyway and so they, their relationship is fine at the end of the book they end up going cave exploring together and uh having this experience at the beach together katsa decides at the end of the book to start teaching young girls hand-to-hand combat throughout the seventh kingdom so it involves this traveling component that she loves and also doing something of her own volition for really the first time Poe decides to go back to Linid for the time being so that he can tell his mother about his blindness, because his blindness is another thing that he's keeping secret from everyone except for Katza, who figures it out herself. And so Katza is planning to join him in Linid at the end of the book, and it ends happy ever after. Pre-Rereading, What I Remember. I really remember the cinematic nature of this book the most from the first time that I read it and fell in love with it and was dissecting it in my mind as a young middle schooler. The book has so many lush descriptions. It's about these seven kingdoms and the kingdoms all have different topographies, for example, so there's Lenid, which is the kingdom that Katsa's boyfriend Poe comes from, and it's a like seaside, very uh lush kind of kingdom. It has lots of cliffs and mountains and the cities, and the little castles are built on these cliff sides overlooking large expanses of water. And there's lots of greenery. There are these trees that are called Poe trees, which have silver and gold leaves, which is how Poe gets his nickname, Poe. There are the Midlands, which is where Katza grows up and stays. It seems more to me like sort of a forest kind of land. also where they end up at the near the end of the novel, around two thirds through the novel, they end up in another kingdom called Monsi which is also a forest kind of kingdom though it borders the mountains and they have to end up going through this incredibly dangerous like frozen Antarctic kind of mountain pass that is horrifying in its intensity. Uh, so I really do remember just the ability of this author to create such a vivid world and I remember dreaming about this book a lot when I was reading it. I might have read it and then read sections of it. I did that oftentimes when I was a kid. No constraints about reading and then rereading the whole book. I did skip around a lot, I remember. So that could be the case. I do really remember the strong character development as well and I had this very profound attachment to the main characters which made the companion novel nature of this story series in general very disappointing to me because I wanted to hear more about Poe and Katza. I didn't really care about Bitter Blue, which is what one of the subsequent books is about. I didn't really care about other characters like Gideon, for example, who becomes Bitter Blue's advisor. So, That's one aspect of the reading experience that I definitely remember from the first time just because I was so disappointed. All we have really about Poe and Katza, from my memory, it's been a long time, uh, is this first book, Graceling. And I think they do appear, if I'm not mistaken, in the subsequent books, but they're not about Poe and Katza to the extent that this book is. So I remember being disappointed because the ending is so open-ended and by design, right? It's open-ended because the what we're getting in this book and indeed in every book in the companion series is just a glimpse in time, really a moment in time of what's going on in this kingdom. It's not the entire history of this kingdom. It's not all that's ever going to happen or all that ever has happened in the kingdom. It's really just a moment and we get to adopt this omniscient perspective of this kingdom and these amazing characters for a moment. And so... I understand now, I think, after rereading it, why the book is so open-ended at the end and why the companion series really fits this world better than the sequel, for example, genre. Rereading. The reading experience. I will say this book is a lot better than I remember. (laughs) I did not really particularly pay attention to things like writing style growing up, especially when I was reading all these YA books, but I will say Kristen Cashore is a great writer, really great writer, and she's able to draw these pictures that are so vivid and are so simple, and she is a really great communicator in that regard, and I think that's one of the reasons why I sped through this book this this next time that I read it. I read the entire book, which is over 400 pages. I think it's like 440 pages or so. I read it within a 16-hour period, which I usually don't read books all the way through. Last time I did that was probably Midnight Sun, but before that was Educated by Tara Westover, which is one of my favorite books of all time. And it's just so good. It's one of those books that it doesn't matter if you binge read it in one or two sittings like I did because it's just good. It's just, it flows super well. There aren't really any parts of the book which are which stall or with which are slower than others to get through. I found myself interested in the whole plot and the whole of the book, which is very unusual for me and fantasy. I remember when I read the Lord of the Rings trilogy and also the prequel The Hobbit in 2016, my first year on the reading challenge, I wanted to go back and read all these books that I had never read before but I thought were important in some way. And of course, Lord of the Rings came up pretty quickly in that search a lot of other books like The Great Gatsby and The Jungle by Upton Sinclair, Catch-22, lots of, like, American literature kind of books. Uh, and Lord of the Rings was on that list, so I read the trilogy, and it was slow. I can't even tell you how slow it was for me. I wasn't really engaged the whole time, I will say that. Unfortunately, wasn't my cup of tea, and I found myself being really bored by all the battles and etc, etc that go on. And this particular book is so character motivated that you stick in with the characters rather than the plot line events. And that's something that I really appreciated in my second read through of the book. I will say also that there's lots of Lord of the Rings ties that I kind of can't get over, and it's one of those things where, of course, Lord of the Rings is popularized, therefore I draw these ties automatically, but it is kind of interesting that, for example, Leenid, the Sea Kingdom, reminds me of the Kingdom of the Elves from Lord of the Rings. It's just the parallels for me, I think, are more so that I can use that Lord of the Rings like imagery and terminology and adapt it to this book so I can understand it quicker and better. And so it really is a deep fantasy novel in that respect, right? There's this kingdom, there's this world that we completely don't understand, and yet Kashor is able to communicate that and uh, have these brilliant... Plot lines and these brilliant characters within it—that is so engaging. All of it together is so engaging. So I really tip my hat to Kashoor in that regard. Post rereading, final thoughts. So I've said a lot of what I want to say about this book in the comments about Kashoor being just a great writer and not that that's rare in the YA genre but it's one of those things that when you have it in a book and you have this great writing and this great ability to communicate on top of a great storyline and great character development it's one of those happy marriages (laughs) that you find i'm not a fantasy person as i said just a moment ago and yet i liked this book a lot which speaks i think to the skill and the craft of this particular novel i have done some research on Kristen cashor i found her blog which is linked in the show notes at slash notes under the post for this particular episode and i really like her approach i've read some of her approaches to getting ideas and writing the writing process and stuff and i think that she has some really insightful things to say so if you're a budding writer or if you're just interested in where books like this come from those are a great resources on her blog that she provides herself for that. The companion book series, not gonna lie, is still a little bit of a thorn in my side, but only because Kristen Cashore did such a good job with these characters that I just want to stick with them for longer and see where they end up. On the other hand, I completely understand why she decides to veer off into different characters, different abilities, different aspects of this fictional world because it's so engrossing in general. And so I would really recommend reading this particular book, reading the companion books, if you really like this book. The best part about the companion books uh, is that, or that format rather, is that you can read any book in order. So there's three books in the series. There's several more books that she's written as well that I believe are tangential to this series. But the books are, in publishing order, Graceling, Fire, and Bitter Blue. But again, you can read Bitter Blue first if you'd like. Really, the background that she provides in each book is sufficient for you not to really know anything about the other books before you read them. So that's one perk for sure of this particular setup with the non-serial companion books. And alright, that is all I have for this episode. Again, all of our sources are linked at relevanceofliterature.com slash notes under the post for this episode. Thank you all, especially to our patrons who support the show. Super grateful for all of you. I am so excited also to announce that we are renaming the podcast on August 1st, and I'm going to find some way to start giving you one or two letters a week of the new name of the podcast. It's a very simple name. It's much shorter, much easier to remember, the Diddy and Hawthorne in the in-between. And y'all, I'm so excited for this next chapter of the podcast. It is the fourth year of this podcast. We're at some almost 200 episodes in. So it's about time that we give ourselves a new face and continue with the great content. As always, if you want to reach out to me, you can email at Hawthorne at gmail.com. That is all for today, for real. Thank you all for listening, thank you for your time and your attention, and I will see you next week.